0: Uh, As many of you are probably aware, uh, this weekend is the busiest shopping weekend of the year. It is, it's true. Just look at the statistics. I've I've been giving this some thought recently. Admittedly, I'm not much of a shopper. I prefer to do things online. Uh, But in terms of individuals who go to brick-and-mortar stores, I have determined that there are two types of shoppers. Two types of shoppers. I have literally uh, zero statistics to prove this, but it's just my thoughts. So you can forget about it in two minutes. Um, there is the shopper who goes to the store to browse. They're, they're just there to browse. They walk into a store to meander. They walk in. They're greeted by the salesman by the saleswoman. They say hello. They tell them about all the sales that are taking place at the store. Remember, it ends this weekend. Make sure you take advantage of the sales. If you can't find your color or your size, there's more in the back. I'll be happy to get it uh, for you. And that person listens intently. They strike up a conversation. They become quasi-best friends with the salesperson. person. Uh, they walk down the store, throughout the store, and they, uh, they see a sweater or maybe a shirt and they think to themselves, I like that. That looks nice. I think it would look nice on me. That might be my color. I'm not sure. I think I'm, I think I'm in autumn, but I might be a cool summer or spring. I'm not really sure. I like that. I think it would compliment my shoes that I have, but I don't have a belt for that. I'm not sure if, if I should make that purchase or not. And they walk through the store and they literally touch everything. They're meandering. They're browsing. Three days later, they walk out of the store with nothing. That's, that's one kind of shopper. Uh, the other kind of shopper is someone who shops on mission. They know what they want. They've studied the layout of the store. Don't ask me how they got the blueprints, but they did. They're well aware of all the sales. They go with one particular sweater in mind. They know what they want. They know where to find it, They walk in, and they are intentional about not making eye contact with the salesperson. They're not there for chit-chat. They're there for a sweater. And so they walk in, their eyes meet, the sweater is about three-quarters of the way into the store, and they pounce like a cheetah chasing a gazelle. They grab the sweater, they run to the front desk, they check out, they're in and out in 60 seconds. Meanwhile, 17 people who are meandering through the store have passed them by. But this person is on mission. They are like a Navy SEAL in there, in and out. The only way that you would know that they were actually there is if you looked at the video in the back. Two different ways to shop. One, to browse, to meander, and the other way, shop on mission. Uh, There are multiple ways that you can live your life. You can browse, uh, you can meander, or you can live on mission. And this morning I want to encourage you to live on mission. I want to encourage you to live on mission uh, because Jesus uh, lived this way. Uh, Jesus was the most mission-minded man ever to walk the planet, And so this morning I want us to look at the mission of Christ and I want us to consider five ways that he pursued his mission. Uh, the mission of Christ was simply to glorify his father, to glorify the father. John chapter 12 verse 27 reads, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus comes uh, to the end of his life and he uh, reiterates his mission that he has been given. And the mission of Christ is to glorify his father. It goes without saying, but Jesus did not live an aimless life. He did not walk through this life and simply drift. He was the most mission-minded man ever. Jesus lived a purpose-driven life way before any pastor wrote a book about it. And his purpose was to glorify God. Now, I say that, and that may sound rather churchy to you. You may have heard that saying or that phrase before, glorify God, But what does it mean? What does it mean to glorify the Father? When scripture talks about bringing glory to God, it means going public with the greatness or the holiness of God. When Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name, he is praying that the world would see the greatness of God. God, you are great, and I want other people to see just how great you really are. Are. I want other people to see you. Jesus lived for God's glory in all that he did. His purpose, his stated mission, uh, was not easy. Uh, living for God's glory is not an easy way uh, to live. When Jesus neared the end of his life, he prayed, Now my soul is troubled. Or some translations will say, deeply troubled. The idea here in the original text is one of revulsion or horror or anxiety or agitation. When Jesus reached the end of his life and said, my soul is troubled because he was living for God's glory, uh, he was admittedly uh, confessing to the fact that the road he would travel would not be an easy one. In other words, Jesus was not out of touch with reality. Isaiah chapter 53, in describing the life of Christ well before Jesus rolled onto the scene, a said of Christ that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. This was uh, the life of Christ. Matthew chapter 26, verse 36, as Jesus nears the end of his life, uh, reads that Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Um, Jesus knew the cost of bringing glory to the Father. Um, The life of Christ was not an easy life. Uh, Sometimes when we think about the Christian life, we think the Christian life is a pursuit of comfort or ease or our very best life. Uh, right here and right now. And yet when you read through the pages of Scripture and you study the life of Jesus, you will oftentimes find just the opposite of that. Um, You will find a difficult life and a hard life. You will find a life of rejection uh, from others. Jesus did not win many popularity contests. The people who were most influential in that day and age are the very same people uh, who rejected Christ. And so when Jesus... Um, prays at the end of his life that God would receive glory in his life, he is well aware of the cost of his mission. Clarity of mission in life oftentimes comes with an awareness of the cost of mission. Clarity of mission often comes with an awareness of the cost of mission. Those two are often inseparable. They certainly were for Jesus. Uh, Jesus laid down his life, for the glory of God. He laid down his life so that other people uh, would be able to see the value and the worth of his father. If you are here this morning and you are looking for a purpose for your life, uh, if you are a student and you're dreaming about what God might have for you in the days ahead, uh, if you are someone who is here this morning and single and you are dreaming about what life could look like you as a single person or if you're married or if you're middle-aged or if you're a little more mature and you have passed the first half of life and are well into the second half or maybe even the fourth quarter, and you are wondering, what should I do with my days on this earth? How should I live? What should I live for? Uh, may I suggest to you Uh, that the mission of Jesus is a good mission to adopt. Uh, Living your life for uh, the glory of God is a good aim uh, in this life. And it is actually a biblical aim. Like you don't have to make it up or dream it up if you're looking for purpose this morning. Uh, Just do what God's word says. Uh, calls us to do, just live the way that God's word calls us to live. This is why you and I were created. This is what we were made for. Isaiah chapter 43, verses six and seven, I will say to the north, give up and to the south, do not withhold. bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. If you are wondering why God created you or made you or what God has for you, um, his aim for your life is found in verse seven. He created you uh, for his glory. He formed you and made you so that people would see uh, the greatness of God in your life. And so make it your aim in all that you do to bring glory to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Uh, 20 years ago, I found myself uh, in my junior year at seminary. I was pursuing a four-year degree, a THM degree at Dallas Theological Seminary, and I was experiencing kind of a unique time in, in life. I was uh, wrestling in my own heart with what God wanted me to do with my days here on this planet. Uh, when I was a senior in high school, I felt called to vocational ministry. Uh, when I was a senior in college, I started questioning uh, what in the world God was up to in my life. I didn't know if I was pursuing ministry for the right reasons. I questioned somewhat what God had in store for me in the days ahead. Uh, and I ended up pursuing seminary and thinking to myself, I'm going to go for four years, I'm going to get through this, and I'm going to go into pastoral ministry. But a crazy thing happened when I was at a Dallas seminary. I saw my friends, people that I knew literally for years, who were on the same path as me, who tapped out. They didn't leave the faith, they didn't abandon the faith, but they began pursuing uh, other things. I had a friend that ended up going into law, I had another friend, uh, that went into computer science. These, these people who were close to me, uh, who were walking alongside of me, and all of a sudden I looked up and they were gone. And I wondered to myself, God, is that what you have for me? Like, what <laughs> what am I doing here? I was married at the time. Melissa and I didn't have any children, and I just wondered if I was pursuing pastoral ministries for the right reasons. And during that time of reflection and prayer, I came across a book. And uh, this book was published some 20 years ago in, uh, in 2003. And it's a book by the author John Piper. It's titled Don't Waste Your Life. And I remember reading a paragraph that I don't want to say changed the trajectory of my life, but it affirmed and confirmed. Uh, what God was doing in my heart. Books oftentimes do this, by the way. You read a book and seldom do you remember the whole thing. Uh, Oftentimes you'll remember a quote or two, a passage or two, a paragraph or two. You know, something that you highlight, that you circle, that you go back to. And, and, And I highlighted and circled and drew arrows to this paragraph and have gone back to it many times over the course of the last 20 years. John Piper writes in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world, but you do have to know the few things that matter, perhaps just one, and then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by one great thing. If you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach to the ends of the earth and roll on into eternity, you don't need to have a high IQ. You don't have to have good looks or riches or come from a fine family or a fine school. Instead, you have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious things or one great all-embracing thing. And be set on fire by them. When I read that, that struck me as very good news. When I read, if you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach to the end of the earth and roll on into eternity, you don't need to have a high IQ, you don't have to have good looks or riches or come from a fine family or a fine school. I thought to myself, I check all of those boxes. (laughs) And then I read, Instead, you have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious things or one great, all-embracing thing and be set on fire by them. I thought, I can live and die for that. I can live and die for that. Let God's glory be your all embracing one thing. Let it be your one thing. Let it impact and affect. Everything you do here on this earth, let it influence and impact and drive you as you consider how to spend your time on planet earth. Let it motivate and move you as you pursue relationships with one another, whether it's a friendship, whether it is a marriage, whether you are a parent or a student, a son or a daughter, let God's glory drive how you spend the resources that God has entrusted to you. Let it demonstrate that you value God and His glory more than life itself. Live for God's glory, and live for God's glory whether you grow up to be a pastor or a pilot, whether you are a student or you sell software, whether you're in sales or you are a CEO, uh, whether you are a manager or a stay-at-home mom, whatever you do in life, live for God's glory. You will not regret it. You won't regret it. And here's some very good news to remind you of in case you need a reminder. Uh, As you pursue living for God's glory, you will do so imperfectly, daily. You will do it imperfectly. Jesus, Jesus did it perfectly. This is very good news. This is what we are reminded of when we come to the text this morning. How did Jesus live his life for the glory of God? How was God the Father glorified in God the Son? Well, we're told in the text, uh, God is glorified when dead people are raised to life. Look at the text, John chapter seven, verse 21. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. What is God talking about when he says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again? I believe that God the Father is talking about how he has raised dead people back to life. God the Father is going, I have done that. Jesus, you've raised people back to life. And I'll do it again. What is the Father referring to? He is referring to the Son. Just as Jesus raised people from the dead, God the Father is going to raise Jesus from the dead. When dead people are raised to life, God is glorified. Because that's unusual, is it not? I tell people all the time, resurrections on the whole are not going up. It's rare. And when it happens, God is glorified. God is seen as great. I believe that this is true, not only of physical resurrections, the handful of them that we read about in Scripture. I believe it is true of spiritual resurrections as well. When we are spiritually dead and God, by the power of His Spirit, Breathes life into us and makes us spiritually alive. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. When you talk to a hundred people and you share the gospel, and maybe ninety-nine of them are like, "Okay, dude, get away from me. That's crazy talk," and, and then there's one, maybe, that says, "I, like, I believe. I'm in." If you're a Christian here this morning, that happened to you somewhere along the line. Maybe it happened when you were five or when you were 15 or when you were 50. Maybe it happens today. Like you walked in here and you're like, whatever, like I'll go. I'm not happy about it. And, And you hear the good news of the gospel and you go, man, I'm in. That's a miracle when that happens. Uh, God is glorified when dead people are raised to life. Uh, God is also glorified when just judgment is made. God judged the world uh, with the death of Christ. John chapter 12, verse 31 reads, now is the judgment of this world. I think about it. We don't like to talk about this, right? This is not like happy Christmas devotional, but, uh, but it is, or it can be, it can be, because Jesus came to, to judge the world. We see this in other places in John's gospel. Jesus had the authority to judge. He had the authority, John five twenty seven, And God has given Jesus authority to execute judgment because he is uh, the son of man. Judgment uh, happens in and through uh, Jesus. He's been given authority by uh, the father. This judgment that scripture talks about is both a future judgment and a right now judgment. When you read about judgment in scripture, there is this sense where oftentimes scripture is talking about an event that will take place uh, somewhere in the future. I think of John chapter five, verses 28 and 29 that read, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and to those who have done evil to the resurrection of the dead. So there is a future judgment that's coming after the resurrection of all God's people, Uh, both uh, the good and the evil. This isn't referring to God weighing the deeds of the good and evil and going, okay, like you've done enough good, you're good, or you've done bad. You're bad. It doesn't doesn't work that way. But scripture is saying that there is a judgment uh, that is to come for people who have not uh, trusted in Jesus. But when Jesus came and lived and died and rose again, uh, he came with a just judgment that is present day here and now. In other words, the judgment that Jesus uh, came down with impacts you and me today. How did that happen? Our text tells us. Now is the judgment of this world. Now, right now, the death of Jesus becomes the decisive dividing line between those who are condemned and those who are vindicated. If you trust in Jesus, scripture tells us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I mean, just think about that. That blows my mind. When you trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, there is no condemnation. I mean, how many times have you gone through life marked by a decision that you've made that's been bad? Like, it's one of those things that you don't advertise, you don't lead with it in conversations. Like, nobody asks you, hey, how are you doing today? And you go, you know, I don't know if I ever told you what I did 17 years ago when I was in college. (laughs) Some of it's blurry, but let me just share it with you. No, you keep it close to the vest, right? And you typically do that if it happened... 17 years ago or if it happened 17 minutes ago. And what happens is those decisions oftentimes bring us guilt and shame. They're used by the enemy to condemn us. So we we walk through life and we're somehow thinking or believing that the decisions that we've made in the past define who we are. But, But when Jesus comes and offers just judgment... Scripture is teaching us that he paid for our very worst. He paid for our sins. Right? So the enemy can't hold them up in front of our faces and say, remember what you've done? Remember what you did? Let me remind you. Oh, no. No, Jesus paid for that. He paid for that. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is true of past sins and present sins and future sins. There's nobody that can say uh, to us, what were you thinking when you did that or you said that? What was going through your mind? You say you're a Christian, but look at your life. You're a mess. That is the voice of the enemy. There is freedom in Christ because of the work of Christ. There is no condemnation. That means that sin does not have final say in your life or in mine. A God is glorified when the righteous judge condemns the guilty or vindicates those who trust in Jesus. A God the Father is also glorified when the enemy is defeated. Look at John chapter 12, verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now I read that and I think to myself, wait a second the ruler of this world cast out, Satan is defeated. Like, how does that work? Because it sure seems like as we navigate through life, there is an enemy. Right? I mean, you just, like, look around. Not just out there, but, like, in here. It seems like there's an enemy. It seems like there is an enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. So, like, how does all of that work? Because here, We're told that judgment has come into the world and now the ruler of this world will be cast out. What I believe that Jesus is referring to here is the work of the enemy or the work of Satan trying to move Jesus off mission as he neared the end of his life. And yet despite the fact that Jesus was tempted, he was not defeated. Right, and so, so we know that there has been a decisive defeat of Satan, even though that defeat is not yet final. We know this because there's other places in the Bible that encourage us uh, to, to use our weapons of warfare against our enemy. Like we're told in Ephesians, put on the full armor of God. We know that there's an enemy in the world that seeks to steal, uh, kill, and destroy Satan is a defeated foe, but he is not a dormant one. Uh, He still moves and he still acts. And yet we have this beautiful reminder here that our enemy uh, has been defeated. Uh, God is also glorified not only when the enemy is defeated, but he is glorified when God's sons and daughters are rescued. John chapter 12, verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him. We have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is the son of man? Uh, We're taught in this verse that Jesus rescues his sons and daughters uh, through the cross. He brings spiritually dead people back to life. Um, God the Father is glorified when God the Son accomplished His mission. There isn't some sense in this passage where God is inviting us to figure things out. Instead, we are reminded of the finished work of Christ on the cross. He is the one uh, who was lifted up for you and for me. The work of Christ is uh, definitive in our hearts and in our lives. We see this in other places uh, in scripture. We see it in other places in the gospel that Jesus actually accomplished something on the cross. John chapter six, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. How does God draw his people? Like He draws them through the work of Christ by the spirit. The father is drawing them. John 10:16. and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. John chapter 11, verses 51 through 52, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. In other words, Jesus is teaching in the gospel, I have a people and they are mine and I am coming for them. I am going to rescue them. There is a difference between a firefighter who stands outside a burning building and makes a decision to go in and to rescue those uh, who are lost and a firefighter who stands outside the fire and simply shouts, save yourself, Save yourself. Jesus went into the fire. He went into the fire and he said, you are mine. This is how God rescues his children. How does he do that? Like what means does Jesus use to bring people who are far from him near? Well, the means that he uses is faith. He uses faith. John chapter 12, verse 35, Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you might become sons of light. Scripture uses this imagery all throughout uh, the Bible, this, this imagery of light and darkness. Those who walk in darkness do not know Jesus. They do not have light. Um, those who have light, who believe in Jesus, have life. This is why Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Uh, Christ's mission uh, was to glorify uh, the Father. He glorified the Father by bringing dead people back to life, by justly judging the world, by defeating the enemy, by securing a people for himself and by calling a people uh, to become children of God, to walk in the light. Can I ask you a question this morning, church family? Do you know the light? Uh, Do you have life? Have you trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? Um, do you know that Jesus was fully God and fully man? Uh, he was sent by God the Father on a rescue mission uh, to this earth to do what you and I could never do, uh, to live a perfect life and to die a sinner's death, uh, to be buried but to be raised back to life three days later. Uh, because of the work of Jesus, you and I uh, have the offer of eternal life with God forever by faith, not trusting in our works, anything that we say or could do, but by trusting in the finished work of Jesus. If you do not know Jesus this morning, I invite you um, to walk in the light and experience the light that he offers. You can choose to live this morning one of two ways. You can choose uh, to meander Uh, through life, or you can choose uh, to live on mission. Uh, By the power of God, uh, may you choose that mission uh, to glorify uh, God. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much for uh, your kindness that you have demonstrated to us through Jesus. Uh, Lord, thank you that uh, you are the life giver. Uh, Lord, thank you that you have a people for uh, yourself, sons and daughters that you have called uh, to know you and to follow you and to walk with you. Lord, if there are people who are far from you this morning, I pray uh, by the power of the living God that you would move in their hearts in such a way uh, that you would instill faith into their hearts Lord, that you would draw them to yourself. Uh, God, for us, I pray that we would uh, live lives on mission. Lord, our time is short on planet earth. I pray that you would help us make the most of it. God, we love you. We thank you so much that you loved us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name and by your spirit. Amen.